Our guest today is Fred Dunn. Fred is maybe the foremost expert or certainly one of the foremost experts on YouTube in the backyard honeybee sort of um, teaching space, as well as chickens and uh, poultry. He really is just putting an unbelievable amount of expertise out for free on YouTube, on his website, and through, actually he's been doing it for a long, long time. He's got other video projects that he mentioned here, but Fred knows a lot about it. I took this opportunity to ask him a lot of my questions about bees. My mom keeps bees. She's really good. She knows a lot. And uh, this was fun to talk to another bee person who could kind of help me uh, learn the basics more. As you guys know by now, we really love all of these ancient hobbies and crafts, the things that people have been doing for centuries and and keeping bees and chickens are right up there so this is the expert very happy to bring you this conversation with no further ado fred dunn i don't meet a lot of people who've been putting youtube content up longer than you have you, you, you kind of started doing this quite a while ago. So as way of background, could you describe not just what led you to start putting content up, but um, I guess what got you into this sort of, you know, keeping bees and chickens and all that in the first place? Because like I said, you've got, you've got quite a, a collection of videos and you got to be one of the first, um, at least in this genre. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, it started... I think it's 2008 might be the oldest video. And I think it's pretty funny to go to your favorite YouTube channels and just jump right on (laughs) sort videos and go to the oldest video. And you'll see what, like for me, what I looked like when I was 25. And, (laughs) um, but I think the reason I had to create a YouTube channel to begin with was because a friend wanted me to vote on something and you had to have a YouTube channel to do it. It was some Home Depot related thing. And then because that was a couple years after I published a video about backyard chickens. Do you know about the video, by the way? Uh, no, not that one in particular. <laughs> oh, it's a heavy category. Lots of competition there <laughs> in uh, backyard chicken ring. But in 2006, I published a video that took about seven months uh, in production. So it's called Regarding Chickens, and it came out as a DVD. And so I also did short chicken videos unlisted or private and back then youtube was really high def 720 by 480 yeah Uh, when you started out you can only do about a 15 minute video i think max and that kind of became a thing when you got far enough along that you could put up a longer video and give a little tutorial uh, because my chicken video was three hours long because i knew people needed to know as much about chickens as possible Uh, but I think the first video, the oldest one, is a is a honeybee video where I lost all my bees one winter. Uh, so the winter of 2008, all the beehives blew over. I think I had eight of them. Came home, and they were all laying out in the snow. Oh. And yeah, I know. <laughs> wow. And so uh, lesson learned there. Strap down your beehives. Uh, I live in northwest Pennsylvania. We're in the area called the Snow Belt. Erie County is north of us, so they're 500 feet above sea level, and we are 1,300 feet above sea level, and we're just yeah. a 15-minute drive southeast. So uh, it's like the twilight zone out here. The weather reports don't even mean anything to us <laughs> here. So so I put all the boxes together, put the bees back up, and uh, thank goodness you could order packaged bees through the mail. And I thought, hmm, 
maybe somebody else wants to see this. So I put them, you know, I made a video showing how to install packages of bees hmm. and uh, didn't know a lot about bees back then. But uh, so the learning curve was pretty steep. I watched uh, programs by Dr. Keith Delaplane, who was the chief entomologist at the University of Georgia. He put together a really great um, series on keeping bees. So I would say he was like my first influence. But the reason I got into beekeeping to begin with was because of the early documentaries about colony collapse disorder. Yeah. So Hackenberg is one of the biggest migratory beekeepers. He's here in the state of Pennsylvania. He's the one that uh, came across all of his bees in their wintering uh, position and had lost bees. Like they were just out of the hives altogether. So that led me kind of on a wild bee chase and uh, to learn more about them. And I'm also a photographer. So I contacted Harrisburg, which is the Department of Agriculture for Pennsylvania, and I volunteered photographic services free uh, just to go and document maybe what's going on with the bees during apiary inspections and things like that. So I would meet the bee inspector at some apiary where the apiary owner would uh, give permission for us to be there. Of course, the inspector goes in the state of Pennsylvania, you have to register beehives. You have to be on the potential inspection list. Hmm. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have a real rapid learning curve there. So yeah. I photographed uh, everything from bears tearing apart hives to not actively, but the aftermath, the hives were all torn apart. Wow. American fowl brood and how we tested for that. So I did macro photography and things like that. So Actually, going with that state bee inspector was probably the fastest way to learn about what can go wrong huh. with honeybees. And as a photojournalist, you might say, I want to record the devastation of the look of that beekeeper's face, just how sad <laughs> he is, right? We're quarantining everything. How do you feel? I didn't do that. So, but that's what I wanted to do. So, and I think the, uh, the state inspector that I was working with. Might have got tired of me because he said, uh, you know, if you keep your own bees, you could just do this kind of photography and stuff, right? And right, like on your own property, you wouldn't have to <laughs> come to these inspections and look over my shoulder and be in the way. And because I even bought a bee suit and everything else just to do photography. And wow. I put I put holes in the veil to put the macro lens through. And huh. back then, I was a little concerned about being stung by bees. Today, that's not the issue. But back then, so. That was the start. And then uh, then I started researching bee lines, genetics, and things like that to decide what kind of bees I wanted to keep. So, Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's really something. So <laughs> before we get too far from it, um, yeah. did you did you have a background? Like when you said you made your chicken video, not, not a lot yeah. of people think of doing something like that. Had you had involvement with producing, I don't know, speculative like video projects or what? what, uh, what how did you <clears throat> come to that, you know, idea? Just a, a hobby gone gone well too deep or what that's an excellent question and the reason is kind of what we're doing right here uh kind of why we have youtube right now uh, i started keeping chickens back in 2000 so back at the turn of the century uh we moved to rural pennsylvania and i designed and built my own home here and my wife and i did that together oh, wow and yeah so it kind of ties into your channel a little yeah. bit. yeah 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 well, so, our viewers know all about building homes so, now 
So, uh, and of course, the first order of business was we live in the country. We have eight and a half acres. It's time to put livestock on it. Mm -hmm. I always wanted chickens. And uh, I read all the chicken books while I was still on active duty in the Navy. In fact, I would use that as a segue to start teaching a class in the Navy. I would say, who grew up with chickens? (laughs) And uh, after they realized I wasn't kidding, I listened to all the farm boys, chicken stories. (laughs) And uh, I carried a chicken book around in my back pocket. Uh, it was huh. pretty funny, but uh, so we got chickens from a rare breed hatchery called Murray McMurray, and uh, started on that journey. And the thing that struck me was we don't have a lot of resources for learning about poultry rearing in general. So especially in the video category, uh, there was a Natural History of the Chicken by PBS. They put out a really nice uh, video, but it kind of just made fun of how quirky chicken people were. And, <laughs> You know, have you seen that, the documentary no. I'm talking about? Uh-uh. So a lot of real chicken people were extremely offended. <laughs> uh, and then, sort you know, there's the poultry fancy. I don't know if you know what that term means. No, tell me. Uh, he, uh, first of all, if we go into livestock, the oldest judged livestock in the United States is what? Chickens. Chickens. That's really? right. Yeah, and I love the questioning tone in your voice because that says that you're already benefiting from this conversation. That's hard to believe somehow. Like, you know, I don't think of a chicken as an animal worth judging too much. Maybe like that is correct. Yeah, and there lies. See, this is how you go down this rabbit hole. Everybody thinks chickens. You see them in all the Western movies, being kicked out of the way of the the gunfighters and everything. Right. But um, so when you raise chickens on your own, you get into what kind of chicken do I want to keep, and then you find out. There's an American standard for each breed of chicken and how that chicken should look. And it's called the standard of perfection. So there's, (laughs) I know this is heavy duty. (laughs) I'm telling you, this is a whole thing on its own. But uh, so fast forward, I wanted to pick rare breeds uh, that were conserving breeds. So I also joined the American Livestock Breed Conservancy, which deals with cattle and everything else, heritage breeds. I got into the chicken fancy, exhibited poultry. Uh, Then I found out that to exhibit your poultry, you have to have your poultry blood tested. So you need a licensed poultry technician to do that. Wow. I know. (laughs) So like, you know, the county fairs and things, you see all these chickens on, you know, in competition there, which by the way, is a very serious thing I found out. And uh, so I contacted all these poultry technicians uh, and none of them would test my birds. And then it occurred to me that this is a fellowship that has a blockade. In other words, all these high-end exhibitors do not have open doors to junior beekeepers, or not beekeepers, but poultry right. keepers and exhibitors, because this includes waterfowl, it includes chickens, you know, so ducks, geese, everything are included. So I contacted Harrisburg again, and I wanted to become a poultry technician. Uh, so that I could do this blood testing. And then I offered this blood testing free to anyone 18 years of age and younger so that we could get them into these exhibits, oh, wow. these county exhibits, which made the old guard extremely angry, Yeah, so, which I, I had direct uh, communication with some of those people. But anyway, and made really good friends with uh, people in the American Poultry Association's competition group there is a group of those fancy exhibitors called Hall of Fame American Poultry Association members. They've got the most points of anybody in the United States. They show the best birds. I found out that I actually knew one of those guys without even knowing. 
that he was a Hall of Famer. So then I also brought him in. We did this three-hour video. So I brought in experts. I didn't want to just make a video about chickens. It was just me, a backyard chicken guy. Being a poultry technician is really about drawing blood, helping people test their birds and things like that. It does not make you a poultry expert. Uh, So I had a good fellowship with these experts and uh, some of my birds won top awards on the county level. I never went to nationals or even state. Hmm. Um, But uh, it was a very interesting thing. So I put together this video. uh, We had avian influenza going H5N1, it was called, high path avian influenza. So I contacted again an expert in avian pathology and it took me probably seven months of harassment to get her to do a 15-minute wow. spot in my video. But I got wow. everybody. So wow. that's what that video is. So oh, That's amazing. So you've been in the business yeah. of giving away secrets and trade secrets of bees yeah. and birds for a long yeah. time yeah. and yeah. casting that's, them out to the, the general public. That's You pretty much nailed it right there. Because wow. uh, once I learn things and I use it as a segue to, I really like giving opportunity to younger people that are trying to get in. Uh, but yeah, you're you're exactly right. Uh, making information available, whether it's birds or bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found that I quickly ran out of material on chickens. I raised African guineas. We did the growth and development of the Australian emu. We hatched those eggs right here. 51 days in the incubator for an emu egg, in case you're wondering. Wow. And uh, fenced a field for them and all of that. So it's just been one thing after another. And my wife is very forgiving and accommodating, <laughs> of course. So. <laughs> um, so, This is a question I was going to ask later, but I got to ask it now because yeah. this kind of, uh, I'll say like a temptation exists in probably every industry, like in the trades, for example, especially like, I don't know, a hundred years ago, guys were not like real excited about sharing trade secrets because the idea was they could take away their own livelihood. And obviously, you know, uh, that expertise is often closely guarded and it is from my understanding, there was a period of time like with concrete where the recipe sort of of concrete actually like left the earth for a while because I don't know if that was like the fire of Alexandria, but where, where technologies existed and then they did not get passed on, which is something you almost take for granted. Like if our forefathers had something, then we get it by right. Are there, I don't know, cultures or people like who were, better at birds and bees like long time ago that we that maybe even know things we don't know now or how how what is it what does the history of these things look like in terms of how well we've received expertise from you know older civilizations well you hit on something this is a very polarizing thing and i can say that within the poultry fancy so chickens and the chicken secrets how to get that bird to look just perfect for a show and things that's very guarded these people are as eccentric as those who show dogs, for yeah. example. Yeah, uh, the chickens are cheaper, though. That's yeah. the good news. <laughs> yeah. But um, it, I was, I've always been a learner. So if I knew an expert, I borderline harass them with my questions and uh, try to use humor, try to let them know that you know I'm just, I just want to know, just want to know. Mm-hmm. And chicken people, I found to be pretty open once they realize you're serious about it. Mm. although they are directly competing with one another and they do have their insider breeding practices, Mm -hmm. which can be very utilitarian. I don't want to be too graphic about it, but they're selecting from hundreds of chicks and they look at them early on in development. 
couple days old and they're already, there'll be a pile of dead chicks there. So they're going through them where the backyard chicken keeper will accept all comers and just happens to celebrate maybe the one or two that look really good. So because we're not, we're not managing 1200 birds, 1300 birds. For me, a large collection is 75 chickens. Okay. Uh, But when it comes to beekeeping, I found them to be, uh, I have, let me back up. I have no doubt that there are beekeeping geniuses out there doing a perfect job. Hmm. They are not at your bee meeting. They're not on YouTube. They don't want to talk to you. So yeah. this is and uh, and some of them that that would share their secrets. What we're doing right now is not within their reach. Yeah, they they don't want to be in the public eye. Uh, beekeeping can be a very private thing. Uh, once again, a lot of you know, I hate to go back to veterans. A lot of veterans are coming back. We have something called hives for heroes. Mm. And uh, it gets them into beekeeping. And it's because it doesn't require that you be social with people. So you can learn about bees, you can keep bees, and it's a very, you know, rejuvenating thing to do. And there's a lot of health benefit to being in the company of a tiny animal like honeybees that now we focus on, you get out of yourself a little bit and you're caring for them. So honeybees also appeal to, you know, the antisocial kind of uh, part of our culture. Well, and YouTube and video and all that like it's just like with craftsmanship like if you if people wanted to be doing youtube or something they'd be doing that they, they're in their wood shop or their bees because they don't want to be on a call or on the computer so these things do are not natural allies i get that completely sure. like when you are especially yeah. with bees like just by nature like you're in a suit you're using both hands the it's sticky you don't want to get it all over your gear so i understand that completely that the the guys who take it the folks who take it the most serious are probably not too interested in plugging up their work area with cameras and people right and all that. oh yeah and right and again the sense of competition if we're commercial you're head-to-head in competition uh with other producers yeah and uh yeah it's so are in pennsylvania and maybe it's state by state but does everybody have to have their bees inspected, even like a hobbyist kind of backyard bee? Uh, in, in the state of Pennsylvania, it is state by state. So each state's Department of Agriculture has their own oversight. Uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, it was the Pennsylvania Beekeepers Association. And I want to say this, so I'm glad you asked that question, because often people write me and they're like, I don't want the man in my backyard. And yeah. I don't need the government telling me what to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, what really happened is our state beekeepers association got together and wanted an oversight program with the Department of Agriculture because we had early on, they had tracheomites, uh, which wiped out over 80% of the bees uh, back when that first hit. And then later we came up with uh, foul broods. We have American foul brood and we have European foul brood. So it's concerning when we have a bunch of beekeepers out there keeping bees and everything's just, you know, going along and they really don't understand what to look for with some of these diseases. And because uh, they're so pathogenic. These bees fly three to five miles in every direction. They can interact with other colonies and they can inhabit other colonies through something called bee drift. So diseases can spread. Mm-hmm. So we want an inspection program and we want the beekeepers to be registered 
And again, that was beekeepers asking for that because if my friend, John the farmer, you know, two miles down the road has foul brood, we need to be alerted because now we need to ramp up our vigilance when we're looking for disease and things like that. And of course, they destroy the hives. And that's why a lot of people don't want to do it. Hmm. It's kind of the same thing that happened with uh, the poultry. Uh, we had uh, avian influenza and people with fighting chickens had valuable birds. And anytime avian influenza moved into an area, they grabbed their birds, they moved out, which carried the pathogens with them. Right. So see, it's a, uh, but anyway, you are required, even if you have one colony of bees in my state to register, your chances of being inspected are very low. That's really interesting. Yeah, my I, maybe you knew this, but I'll just for the rest of the conversation. My mom has bees, so I've been around them a little bit, and she's probably got I don't know, maybe five or eight hives at any given moment, and so mm -hmm. um, would make sense, you know, that that uh, these bees are spreading diseases just the way other wildlife and and humans do. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that that certainly makes sense. Um, here's a question for you, and you hit on it. And I can remember in 2005, I think it was when I first heard about this colony collapse mm. and maybe it had been going on long before that. I don't know. That's when I heard about it. And I remember feeling the same kind of panic, like, oh my gosh, this is holy smokes. And at that time it was, people didn't know if this was like cell phones or, or something else. And I kind of feel like I never really got an answer on that. I heard, and I got kind of worried and paid attention. And I think around that time, my grandpa was doing bees, so I was feeling like, yeah. oh, there's good. There's a couple new hives. Yeah. Anyways, what whatever came of that, is that still going on? Do we know what it is? Can you like well, wrap that up <laughs> for me? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that kicked around. By the way, that cell phone thing got legs and went everywhere. And that was actually from a student doing research who was putting a cell phone inside a beehive on vibrate <laughs> to, to see yeah. if the bees would react when you called the cell phone. And somehow this blew into... Cell phones are causing the bees confusion and colony collapse and everything else. That study oh, wow. was very tiny. It was inconclusive, did nothing. Bees didn't care. But that study so, ran. Wow. Oh, and this is our climate, by the way, right now. Yeah. Uh, as news. soon as somebody, 5G networks, I just yeah. get, uh, <laughs> no, I get, I get those messages huh. eh, every other week. Somebody's convinced. And I always direct people to science. Uh, you really have to. Not that we need to understand the makings of that high frequency or electromagnetic energy and things like that, uh, but they'll say they'll see bees dropping out of the air, you know, things like that. But always go with the science. But colony collapse is almost something that uh, a lot of those uh, in research for Apis mellifera uh, almost wish that hadn't come out because colony collapse disorder by definition, was a colony collapse. In other words, it disappeared. You didn't find a pile of dead bees in your hive or a pile of dead bees in front of the hive. They absconded. So they were completely gone. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we know. But the good news of that was that in those documentaries, and you were alarmed when you heard about colony collapse. So actually putting the term out there was both, you know, kind of a fire that was lit under everybody's rear end on it. But at the same time, we're kind of missing what's going on because it really ties into the synergistic effect of what's going on with how we're doing agriculture, hmm. how we're losing diversity in the environment, how we're eliminating hedgerows, how we're going into monocultural crops. And Hackenberg, as I mentioned before, was the one that first noticed it on a large scale, but he is 
also one of the things that we look at as a you know causation for what's going on with the bees is because we're migrating bees to the almond groves, which is coming up here in the second week of February, by the way. Hmm. And uh, we have, if you understood the scale of that operation in the almond groves of California, uh, we're in the millions of hives on the move, wow. which means that we're also, whatever pathogens and whatever uh, diseases might be present at any of these pollination service sites, they get mixed and moved again because pathogens can also be passed on the flowers. So from bee to bee, from other bees, they all visit multiple bees, visit the same blossom and things like that. So that's one thing. And then migrating is another thing. And then, of course, habitat change and climate shift is another issue because now we have dearth where we might not have much colder in this area where it hadn't been before. And so these now these weather dynamics are also crunching the bees. And the number one thing on everybody's list is the Varroa destructor mite, which is a parasitic mite that feeds on bees and uh, everybody, anything to do with mites, everybody tunes right in. And the reason that can be potentially damaging is because the idea that these mites are on my bees and that these mites are destructive to my bees, I'm going to do anything it takes and use any treatment I hear about in the wind mm-hmm. on my bees to kill that mite, not understanding the long-term potential impact on the bees. Mm. Uh, and of course, mite resistance and residue in your comb, contamination of the honey. And so it just goes on and on. But there's no single uh, cause identified for colony collapse disorder, but it has caused us to look at everything collectively. And and it is it is very much uh, it's happening. The bees are under pressure, and but one thing hasn't surfaced, and that we could point a finger at and say it's this. It's just that's right. Yeah, the bees are adjusting to this changing dynamic world. Right. So instead, we assign weight to different impacts on the bees that could be negative. I see. On the flip side of that, we've got all this great research going on with the positive things for the bees. So reestablishing, rewilding, and letting percentages of agricultural property go wild so that now we can have natural pollination sources, not just for the bees, but for all the pollinators. Keep in mind, the honeybees are not native. Some people don't even like them. And uh, in some areas, they are impacting native pollinators, so native bees. Oh, interesting. So there Um, is a potential negative aspect to a big commercial bee operation in one area impacting adjacent land and the native pollinators there. I think I understand it, but just in case some viewer um, missed it, will you just explain a little um, more, one level more basic about these almond groves? And do Mm -hmm. I understand it correctly that bees are rented out to do the pollinating yeah, and they kind of come yeah. and go. So could you explain how that works yeah. in agriculture? Yeah, the pollen grows. And if you Google it or look at any YouTube or any video about um, pollination of the almonds in the United States, we are by far the largest producer and provider of almonds in the world. Over 80% of the world's almonds come from here in the United States, wow. specifically the state of California. So, and you can, all agriculture reports are available, they're public domain. So you can see, first of all, the millions of acres 
of almond crows. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the onset, this is what I'm always interested in, what is not being covered. In other words, how much of the almond crop is attended to by these migratory bees and how much of it was left without a contract. In other words, without a migratory beekeeper coming in. Mm -hmm. So what it is, it's an unfulfilled demand. Mm -hmm. For beekeepers, ballpark, uh, you can get paid $250. And of course, this is published. So you can go and look it up to see what a single colony of bees and bees are graded, by the way, so you can't put like a package of bees in a box of bees and take them out and get accepted to pollinate almonds. They have to be a full box. They have all these grading levels mm -hmm. for it being accepted. But so if you've brought in 4,000 colonies of bees to pollinate almonds and you're getting 240 to $260 per box, mm -hmm. the math is substantial. It's huge money. Yeah. And that's what really drives that machine. And on the flip side of that, that's why we have so much attention being paid to bees and beekeeping in the Department right. of Agriculture, because there's all this money assigned yeah. to beekeeping. If it was just backyard beekeepers keeping bees and not contributing in an economic way to our U.S. Department of Agriculture, yeah. then it would not be uh, we would not get the attention that we much need and get so. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, you might have to scold me about this, but you're the guy to ask. I got a little <laughs> bit sideways with a neighbor over his bees and because yeah. I was spraying, spraying Roundup on my property mm -hmm. and I didn't spray near his beehive because I know enough about bees to know that it couldn't help. But anyways, yeah. he he explained to me how uh, how, well, he didn't explain much, but he was really concerned about it. And one thing he did say that I thought was interesting, he said if, if Roundup gets underneath a beehive, it can kill the grass that's growing, which collects dew that they get, which is how they get water. So could you uh, talk about that a little bit? And I don't well, you may not be a Roundup expert, but in general, I'm, all, um, what, what I'm would always you, alerted. What would you yeah. add? Yeah. I'm, my, my antenna always go up when uh, I'm being asked a question to settle a dispute, <laughs> but um Roundup, keep in mind, Roundup is an herbicide. Roundup uh, makes, of course, systemically loaded pesticide. Uh, the Bayer Company worked with Roundup to have systemic pesticides built into the corn, for example. Uh, but when you're spraying Roundup as an herbicide, uh, there are also fungicides that get sprayed. Remember, those are designed to kill organic material, not animals. Right. Uh, and the, yeah, I don't want to like call out your neighbor, but if grass didn't exist under the hives, that would do the, the idea that your spraying Roundup could migrate to the bottom of his hives and then the condensation from that kill those, kill the grass under the hives. Yeah. That's Roundup that's being used well beyond labeling. Okay. Yeah. So I used to actually have uh, conversations with people at Monsanto, huh. and a good friend of mine was a chemical engineer at Monsanto Creve Corps, which is a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. And I grew up knowing them well before I ever did anything with bees. But uh, so people do get alarmed, and there are the science again is out there. What gets damaged when we use different herbicides, even pesticide use? The time of day that it's applied matters. Yeah. The time of day that bees forage matter. For example, if you're putting out your herbicides in early morning, 
the bees start foraging in a meaningful way about noon and later. Oh. So these are things that you can work out with neighbors who keep bees. And if you're a crop farmer and things like that, uh, spraying at night uh, even helps too. Yeah, so after the bees have gone totally in, because they don't, they don't navigate after sunset. Huh. Uh, and they also don't navigate on the cold days. So the low end threshold for bees, if you're under 50 degrees Fahrenheit, when you apply it, we have no foragers out. Well, that's great. Um, I know that my mom has talked about how her bees I can't, she didn't say half of the time, but a lot of the times, and this might just come from being kind of newer at it, but they'll leave. And actually this neighbor, I got two neighbors with bees and they both, and we're on good terms, but, and they both kind of talked about how, yeah, we used to have bees and then they left or they're, they died and they're gone. And my mom has talked about that, how she says that, you almost, I don't know that they just, it's hard to keep them there somehow. And so I, I think for a beginning beekeeper, that's probably one of the most disappointing parts is they get set up with bees, they get all this gear, they get, they get a hive and then it's gone. And I could imagine feeling like you did a bad job or you killed them or one of these things. So what's, what, how do you talk to like a beginning beekeeper and help them understand maybe not necessarily what they're doing wrong, but just how bees work. And, and to what extent stuff like this happens, or is it because of a mismanagement? Yeah, when new beekeepers get their bees, leaving means a lot of different things. One, bees swarm, generate a new colony of bees, and off they go. Bees that lose their queen, for example, can dwindle away down to nothing without if they don't produce a replacement queen. So things can happen, and when you have just a couple of beehives, that's dramatic. Uh, you come home and your bees are gone, or you you inspect them. The numbers are way down, and they're not being productive. And usually this just goes into understanding the biology of the bees and being vigilant about looking in on them. <clears throat> but swarming is what alarms people. And... Uh, when they leave it or when they just disappear or dwindle to nothing, usually that's uh, because they have lost their queen. 80% of brand new beekeepers uh, quit within the first two years. And it's usually because something like that happens. Their bees disappear and they don't understand why. And they invested in all this infrastructure. Plus they connect with the bees. They treat them like pets and they take it yeah. personal. Yeah. So yeah, that that's how my mom was. She lost a couple of highs and she was crushed. She's a like extreme animal lover. So she gets attached to like, you know, insects all, all the time, but, but still, um, I can imagine that the bees, although they're insects, there is something a little fuzzier about them and a little bit more, uh, um, I don't know. I think, I think we can just respect how hard they work. Yeah. Build, people, you know? people refer to the honeybee as the vegan wasp because <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. they are fuzzy and they're, they're portrayed, they're cute. Yeah. Uh, everywhere that you see a honeybee, it's a positive thing, yeah. you know, so. Have you ever had hives? Um, I know that to some extent they can take on personalities of the queen and such. I've heard. Have you ever had hives where that was really extreme or that you could tell us about the extent to which that happens? Yeah. Um, and you hit it right on the head because every bee in that colony comes from that queen. So the queen genetics are oh. key. Somehow I didn't, that never clicked for me, but it makes sense now. <laughs> so, that's why we're doing this right now. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Yeah, the queen, this is why people spend so much money on a queen bee. They bring her in and introduce her to a colony of bees, which may have just been leftover workers from uh, the pollen uh, services through the almond groves. They mm. often sell off those bees as packages and put queens in them and sell them to people. Mm. So they're not related. And so the queen starts laying eggs 21 days after she's laid her egg, which is a great time for chickens because it takes 21 days for a chicken egg to hatch. There you go. <clears throat> So uh, after she's begun laying, 21 days later, those are the replacement bees for the colony. And that replacement continues up to 1,500 to, in some cases, up to 2,000 eggs per day. Whoa. So that means at the, this is during prime nectar flows and springtime and things like that. That's when they really ramp up their reproduction. And so that means 21 days out, you're hatching out that many new bees every day in that colony and the colony grows. So um, the queen is the source of all that. But your question was, I think you're talking about what's referred to as a hot hive. Yeah. Where you walk out there with your cup of coffee, you're a hundred feet away and you get stung on the forehead for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) I've not had, and people, by the way, this is for your mom. Uh, they take it personal. It's like, what? I wasn't doing anything. I care about my bees. And they just stung me for no reason. <laughs> so, but what I do is I assist other people. And I did have someone uh, contact me and they were beekeepers. They had, oh, I don't know, like 20 hives plus. And they brought some bees up from the south. And uh, they had a change of attitude one colony and because all their colonies are in a row one off one right after another which a lot of people do they couldn't tell which one was doing it but they attacked not only them they attacked their livestock their chickens stung their hogs mm. and even in bee suits uh her husband was in a bee suit and he took 50 plus stings holy so they smoke. they couldn't they couldn't come out of their house so and uh <clears throat> so they called me they didn't know what to do I said, well, I'll come over if I can video it. <laughs> so so if I can exploit your situation, sure. I'll come. So I went over there, and one of her chickens had been attacked by honeybees to the point where only its feet were showing. Oh, my God. In other words, it was covered in these bees. Oh. The video is on YouTube. So <laughs> not to promote it. Yeah, we'll, but, we'll uh, it. So what I did was I tested the defensiveness of each colony by just standing directly in front of the landing board and went on down the line. So I told them we kind of had a plan and I said, if they come out and, and once I find if they, if they get really defensive, you go in your house, I'll deal with them. Did you want me to go ahead and euthanize the colony? And she was very excited that I would even do that for them. (laughs) Uh, Because sometimes that's exactly what you have to do because we have to get those genetics out of the area and so there's two ways that these genetics move out one is of course the drones the male bees that are in that colony can fly out and carry on these defensive genetics and of course at the queen there's another term called usurpation which means these aggressive queens which we refer to as africanized bees uh, because their genetics are from those bees that we've all read about that came up through our southern border and uh, what happens is they move in, the queen moves in, they kill the queen oh. that's existing in the colony. 
Oh, wow. And they occupy the colony and take it over, and including the brood and the bees. The nurse bees are in there basically defenseless anyway, and they're easy to win over. So it becomes this Africanized colony instantly. Wow. So that usurpation practice is very interesting. What, what, but how, yeah, that's how do the, they get a new queen when they do a usurpation? Do they hatch one and then like train? No, the queen mean? came as a hostile takeover. Oh, the queen, the queen came, with them. came and they entered that hive oh, got it. and attacked the guard bees on the landing board. Wow. And uh, of course, forced their way in. <clears throat> Is that what killer bees are? Are, are Africanized bees yeah. the same as killer yeah. bees? Yep. And that was another thing I heard about years ago. And that's a, you you said it they kind of came up through the southern border and they're spreading across the country and that's pretty much it is that is that the case is these africanized bees are just they'll show up from time to time or what they can't handle there? the cold they're focused on our border states they're in florida now too they kind of skip through the middle of the gulf there because they came by boat <clears throat> they can't handle the cold okay. that's why we only have an issue with them when people bring in their bees from out of state from the south yeah because they I just don't do well Arizona and there was a death on a hiking trail from uh, some bees and it was pretty jarring. <laughs> you know, this person just kind of on a hike and terrible. Um, it's, it's no joke. And usually when something like that happens though, I'm glad you mentioned the person who died because this can easily get sensationalized. Yeah. The rule of thumb for a healthy person who is not allergic is you can handle 10 stings per pound. Oh, so that you weigh that a person weighs. That's correct. So oh, it really geez. puts it in perspective. You have to be massively stung by bees if you're healthy. I see. Now, if you're allergic, one sting can get you. Yes. Depending on your level of, you know, what your allergy level is. You said earlier that you're not really worried about stings anymore. Is that something that just from getting stung, you're just not scared of it? Or is does your body build up some type of tolerance to it? Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that too, because it ties into a couple of things we talked about earlier. One was that uh, uh, some beekeepers are isolated from people. And so early on when COVID came out, they were like, well, bee stingers don't get COVID. It must be the venom. This is no oh. beekeepers uh, hate people and they stay away from the <laughs> local culture. But so, but uh, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. No, that's, that's a good, so, just about whether you're, I guess you are building. Oh, right. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So that's what it is. Why don't I, often I just wear a veil. I don't wear, yeah. you know, I go in with bare hands and everything, but that really ties in with understanding the disposition of the colony, when to go into it, how to move the bees and frames and things around while you're in there. So as not to get them defensive. I see. Uh, and of course, each colony of bees reading what their temperament is, which can change through the year. So different times of year, they can become more defensive. If there's a big nectar flow and you smell the honey in the air, you can almost do anything to them at that point. They're all fat and happy and, and they're not going to defend anything. Yeah. So the stock, the type of bees that you're keeping, and then of course, what's going on and how you go in there. Because I don't actually get stung very often. But it does hurt the same when you get stung as it did like years ago. You just might not be as. Well. It's not my. It's not my favorite feeling. Yeah, but it's not something like <laughs> when you're a kid and you get stung for the first time. It's a really big deal because it's never happened Act before. Actually, it's very interesting because I have grandsons that are six years. Two of them are six years old that helped me with bees. Both of them stepped on bees this summer and got stung in the foot, and I was astonished by how well they took that. Interesting. Yeah, my so it really, yeah. Yeah, my son got stung when he was probably 
four or three, and I was I was more worried than he was. As I at the time, I remember thinking like I was gone when it happened, and they kind of told me Leo got yeah. stung, and I was like, yeah. "This Leo right here, who's playing and doing his thing." Yeah. I thought he. I thought I could have thought it would have been worse. Um, I feel like this is like a beekeeping mythbusters right now because I'm just like giving you yeah. all my questions that have been like sitting those in my are, mind for a while. Those are good questions. I'm happy to answer. Um, here's the <laughs> next one. Over the years, I've seen like, I'll say, and I'm sure beekeeping technology and tools does continue to grow and expand. And so there's always people testing new things. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a few just recently. Um, the first was a couple years ago and it was that bee system where you can, just turn a crank and it separates the hive. Okay. You got one there. It's called a flow hive. Yeah. Could you talk about that? When I saw it, I showed my mom, she, she, her instinct was like, Oh, that's, that's probably a gimmick. There's no way it could be that easy. We we never got any closure on that. So how's the flow hive? I'm really glad that's a flow hive right there. That's a flow hive straight over my head. That's one behind me. It's one over there. Anyway, when that first came out, cause you're right. I do a lot of, research and development, testing, and they also contribute my thoughts and uh, suggestions to a lot of companies that make bee products. So I do help uh, with no return. In other words, I don't ask for any uh, compensation at all for that. But uh, the Flow Hive came out 2015. They did an Indiegogo campaign and they produced that video that showed Honey coming out, holding right. your toast under it. And <laughs> <laughs> none of the bees are on the people or anything. And it was a very sensational thing because yeah. a lot of people are new to beekeeping because of that innovation, because it made it look like, wow, you just go up to your beehive, they put the honey in it, yeah. you open it and <clears throat> get your jar and fill yeah. it up with honey and we're done. Yeah. <laughs> so I got on there during their Indiegogo campaign and I ordered one. They're expensive. I ordered just a super, so that's just the box with the frames that they put their honey in, like $475 for that or something. Wow. In the meantime, others that are into beekeeping uh, were just blasting it away, you know, just like, that's not real, that's garbage, that's a toy. And so some people came out very early with very strong opinions about it, and my point has always been, you know, well, let's get one and let's put it on a beehive and see what they do. And so what the bees do is everything in that beehive, so all these lower boxes are the same as any other Langstroth style vertical hive configuration. So your brood and your queen and everything is down in this bottom box. So, and then normally we would put honey supers on your beehive. So we would put medium boxes with the frames are about this tall. Those get capped with, you know, if the honey gets filled and then they get capped and then we harvest it. And sometimes you'll see three, four, or five boxes stacked high, especially in the south. And that's all honey. Uh, to get that honey out, you have to take those boxes off, smoke out the bees, get them out of those honey supers. And sometimes they use the skateboards and things like that that are one-way gates for the bees to go through. Pull them all off. Then you have to go to your harvest station and you have to uncap, spin them out, run them through a filter. Then you jar the honey. What this did was, and which is why it's really focused on backyard beekeepers, which is my specific demographic, the people that I'm trying to educate are backyard beekeepers. Uh, the flow hive eliminated all of that uh, because the bees build there. <clears throat> It'd be cool if I had one of the frames to show you. So anyway, that is a flow frame. Wow. 
Look at that, ready to go. And there's, right, so if you look, these are hexagonal cells. Yeah. And each other leaf shifts and takes that hexagonal cell. Once the bees have sealed it up and it takes it from the hexagon, it cracks it open like this, creates a leaf path. Wow. The honey goes down, you tilt it to the back. Honey goes out of a tube right here and straight into the jar with no filtering and no processing. And then you reset it. The cells lock up again. The bees go back in there and then they seal it up with wax, propolis, whatever they need to do. And they start refilling it again. Each one of those frames produced for me a half a gallon of honey. And there's seven of those frames in a super. And you can also get a six frame version they're really expensive. That was one of the things that continues to be a sore spot for beekeepers. They're just furious. It's out of range financially for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't have to put it through an extractor. It is fun Wow. Uh, to have someone here at my house who's maybe here for another reason or they wanted to know if they could get a quart of honey or something like that. Just happens to be a day in the 80s. Just oh, happens man. to be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and I'll say, did you bring a jar? <laughs> no way. let's go and that's wow. what they say too they go what are you talking about I said, are you scared of bees oh by the way are you allergic to bees let's go and so we go out there and i pull off the back of the hive see the bees are coming and going from the front yeah so that video that they made that everybody was saying was garbage and the bees would be all over you if you did that turns out to be true wow. they don't come to the back of the hive they're coming and going from the front of the hive yeah we're doing it during one of those non-defensive times of year when they have plenty of nectar and resources coming and going. So we open up the back and I can show them all the flow frames and we can see that they're capped with wax. Wow. And the bees wait until the honey is dehydrated down and what we call finished honey before they put that cap wax on there. And because we have these windows in the back, you see right through this panel. Yeah. And we'll see that it's finished. And then because they start in the center and they fill it out to the edges. So when we're looking at the end panel, we're seeing the finished product. And then you fill their jar right there and uh, off they go. And they actually did studies on the honey. Uh, University of Queensland in Australia published a study on uh, the flavor of that honey. In other words, as compared to going through normal extraction processes that a lot of commercial operations do. And in Australia, they had beehives that were using the same forage, the same environment. So they made as many of the, the standards the same as possible. And then they brought in these professional honey taste testers. And they, they across the board, selected flow honey over the traditionally extracted honey because we also introduced smoke over here right. and ran it through a lot of equipment when you processed it, which coming straight from the hive with no smoke because you didn't have to open it. And it went straight from the hive into the jar with no intermediate processing. So that had an impact on flavor, consistency, and what they called mouthfeel of the honey, which was weird to me. Mouthfeel, yeah. But uh, that's what I did my final um, Master Beekeeper uh, project on for Cornell. (laughs) Um, Okay, hold on. First of all, so in other words, that flow (laughs) hive, you think they work great. If you can afford it, go for it. You don't. They work, yeah. Yeah, they work. And second, and now tell me... Cornell has a master beekeeper program, or could you explain that? Um, because okay. uh, I, I, I know very little about this, and I'm this is pretty interesting in and of okay. itself. Here. The, the very first 
university in the United States to have a master beekeeper program was Cornell University. Huh. And they have a, uh, a laboratory for honeybee research there in Ithaca, New York, called the DICE Lab, which is named again after an entomologist that studied bees. And uh, that is a uh, master beekeeper program. Wow. So you can go to school. University of Florida has a master beekeeping pro program. And there's something called EAS, which is the Eastern Apiculture Society, which also has a collective where they have a standard for master beekeepers. Oh, that's amazing. Well, this might be a good spot to wrap up. Could you talk about, like you said, the backyard beekeeper and, and chickens, but we're on to bees now, but it's sort of okay. where you focus your energy. And I know you've got the way to be uh, program and, and yeah. how do you advise people start into this? And then how, what types of tools have you put together to help them? And can you kind of walk through some of that? Because as we just learned, you are the master. The yeah, <laughs> Not the master. But anyway, um, and by the way, that, that master beekeeper title thing is really identifying bee experts who are dedicated to educating others uh -huh. about bees. Okay. So it's not like an arrival that puts you at the top of some, sure. you know, beekeeping. But well, uh, my brother we're, has we're a, dedicated. To my brother has a master's in accounting, so I call him the master. Also, it's just yeah. Uh, he 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 got. Well, I, I did. I did want a sweatshirt that said "Master Huge" and just in little tiny letters, "Beekeeper." <laughs> yeah, there you but go. But <laughs> anyway, um, so for the people that are starting to work with bees, one of the ways that the YouTube channels are really helping out is because we can walk you through the beginnings like what stock you're going to get anyway but you need to know as much as you possibly can about the bees themselves biologically before you consider getting them putting them in your yard or you'll have a lot of frustration potentially could even be dangerous um, depending on what stock you're getting and how you prepare yourself to deal with your bees but uh so we have a series i answer questions every friday uh the series is up to like I don't know if it's 143 episodes every Friday. Uh, we answer bee questions, but also on my channel, you know, I talk about hive configurations because there's a lot of choices that frustrate new beekeepers mm -hmm. when they decide to get into it. Do they have to buy that flow hive? I would say don't even touch it. Mm -hmm. If you don't know that you like caring for honeybees on your property, don't just get one of those and think, well, I'm just going to get honey out of it. Because then when the honey doesn't come and they don't fill that super, yeah. you're nothing but frustrated and you're dying to show all your friends how successful you are in keeping <laughs> bees. Yeah. So if you have a local program, a local beekeepers association, and usually you can find out through your state department of agriculture, or you can do a search for your state's beekeepers association, and then they list all the regional associations. And it's best if you can join one of those or partner up with someone who's as unantisocial as possible. I chased a beekeeper around here for a long time and only got one-liners out of him on his way out of the hardware store <laughs> day after day. But he does it to be so, he's one of those more private type hermit oh, beekeepers. <laughs> I would walk in there and, and the owner of the hardware store would be like, he's over there. <gasps> so I'd get my question ready. He would answer one question on his way out the door. And he's gone. Because he was there restocking the honey shelves. But anyway. So you find somebody that's personable and that hopefully uh, keeps bees in a way that you hope to keep bees. Commercial beekeepers are happy to have you come over and help them out. But that can be such a fast-paced uh, way of managing bees and very utilitarian hmm. that it may not match up with maybe you want to keep 
here's where the monkey wrenches come. Top bar hives or a horizontal hive or a, a lay-ins hive. See, now all these different hive configurations come into play. And so sometimes a new beekeeper will invest in some very sophisticated hive configuration only to find out that everything about it's unique mm. and you can't get frames for it or you can't get, you don't know how to put bees in it. Uh, I've had people buy beehives and write me, do the bees just come to it, thinking that it's like a beehive that they, I mean, like a birdhouse. You put it out mm. there, you build it to spec, and pretty soon birds occupy it. Mm. Uh, it doesn't, you know, generally happen that way. So mm. learning as much as you can. Uh, try to get a local bee association like this year here where I live in Erie County. We have bee courses, beginner beekeeping courses for people to attend. And then I pick up any surplus um, questions or if anybody wants to advance a specific direction, I'm what's called a beekeeper at large and uh, for our bee, our bee association. So we can help them out depending on what specifically they'd like to do. Yeah, uh, but that, yeah. Get, there's lots of great bee books out there. There's and again, thanks to YouTube now, where it's different than when I was starting out. Uh, you have complete programs here on YouTube. So yeah, well, the fact that people can chime into your show, no, not chime in, just listen in and hear you yeah. talk for a couple hours or however long about yeah. where everything is relevant, and even if it's not the exact question, they're still absorbing the questions they didn't know they should even ask. And right. that's yeah. pretty that's pretty darn cool because there's not a lot of bee experts just running around, you know, the world. I mean they're out there, but they're not they're not everywhere. So being able to just like have one just unload like that is Yeah, and we just valuable. had that we had that Hive Life conference down in Tennessee. I don't know if you heard about it. No. What? How did <laughs> I missed that one. <laughs> The largest uh, beekeeper conference in the United States right now just happened uh, down in Tennessee, wow. in uh, Sevierville, Tennessee, and uh, there were 850 attendees, all wow. the big uh, bee equipment manufacturers and yeah. marketing people were there. And But to tie this in, the thing that was remarkable to me was I was invited just to be there and to talk to people, and so many people came up who watch everything I do watch yeah. every episode. I can't even imagine that, first of all. And I feel sorry for them for having to sit <laughs> through that. But uh, it's like you said, even if it's not pertinent to what they're doing right now, it's be knowledge that may be pertinent later or at some time. And that's why I try not to make it redundant. I try If I'm bringing up information that's been brought up before, it's because there are, there's new research, there's a new piece of kit that goes with yeah. that process. Um, so that's kind of how it goes. Uh, I well, almost thought that you heard of me from that conference. I was wondering how you even found out about me in the first place. <laughs> well, to be honest, well, I have B videos popping up on my sidebar all the time because, um, like I said, I've been aware of them because my mom does them. And we, we actually did a, I did a podcast with her a year ago. In fact, if people are listening, um, they can hear her. She has a lot of the same comments, like how valuable the the local bee association has been for her getting started and, and the extent to which sometimes bees, you know, don't get attached because if they leave some of, some of those kinds of things that she learned early on anyways. Um, so I get these bee videos popping on my, in my sidebar and I think you popped up in, uh, in one of those. So I watched a few, but your, your videos are much, I'll say not that they're super technical, but they're, they're, although the, the video and the, Shots are all beautiful and very up close, but you also are giving a lot of real specific knowledge and very um, 
that kind of several layers deeper than the, you know, some of the more, um, sometimes videos will go real viral. I don't know why, but they're maybe kind of basic. In fact, that's what's the one thing I wanted to ask. I saw a video recently. It just got posted a few weeks ago with the I know what it is. system. Yeah. yeah. I, and I yeah. actually watched your, um, vlog about it also. So I know it's too soon to like get feedback, but it's another example right. of how new things are coming out and people are trying new things. And I, I kind of put a smile on my face that here we are thousands of years after we domesticated bees and still yeah. coming up yeah. with things, you know, so I'll, hopefully some point, someday you'll have a, some type of more experience with that, or maybe you're all ready to chime in. I'll link well, to be, it for people now. I, I, um, spend way too much time answering people's questions, but one of the things I do, if I put up a video about anything, if somebody asks a question, I give them a response. Um, the individual that put that up, I had a lot of questions for him. So I put a question on there. He does not respond. Oh. He does not uh, give filler information. He does not field your questions. Yeah. His channel is huge. Uh, not as huge, by the way, as your YouTube channel. But he has like 450-some thousand subscribers. That's a lot. And uh, bees in a bottle. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what to tell you. It's pretty interesting for the, for the listeners. This guy has put bees growing in like think of like a gigantic two liter soda soda bottle well they're recycled like they're recycled big water font bottles oh, okay and so he's he's found a way to recycle these bottles use them with bees and then of course cut them out but he doesn't show even how he gets the bees out of the honeycomb yeah. there's a lot of gaps in what's demonstrated so and yeah. he's in another part of the world where here, and I'm glad you mentioned that too, because we could actually touch on it. If your hive configuration doesn't allow you to pull the frames out and look at all the comb, it's an illegal configuration here in the United States because oh. every part of your hive has to be inspectable. I didn't and he know does, that. and he does have near the end of his video a really large, like a five-gallon plastic jug that he's made that he has wooden frames that do slide in and he can pull them out. Yeah. So that would be the only configuration that you would actually be allowed to use here in the U.S. Okay, interesting. Well, I love that people are coming up with new tools and systems and testing and who knows, who knows what the future will bring. It's just these, these uh, I'll call it like a trade, but these, these things that have been around for centuries and here yeah. we are still learning yeah. about them and still yeah. figuring them out. Well, Fred, thanks so much. I'll, we'll link to your YouTube channel and a lot of the videos we talked about in particular. Are there any other uh, platforms you're on? Or we didn't really even mention uh, your Way to Be Academy, although maybe we did indirectly. The, <laughs> the Way to Be Academy is is probably going to be virtual. Okay. Uh, the, the response was too large and I'd have to cut out too many people. <laughs> well, virtual so, works. That's that's Yeah, that's it's going to have to be a, you know, my own little research center, but uh, Yeah. Yeah, but that's it. It's uh, the way to be.org is also the same website, Fred's Fine Fowl. And YouTube is where I do most of my teaching. All the rest of it's just in person. That's great. Well, you, you have an enormous amount of, of information on your website. We, like I said, we barely touch chickens, but there's just yeah. as much or maybe more information on, on, on that on there. And maybe we'll have you back on to get into some of those details next time. So, Thank you so much. Yeah. We'll link to all these things. Any final uh, words for a beginning beekeeper you would leave? If they made it to this point, they're probably serious yeah. about bees. So. Yeah, that's a good if they haven't <laughs> bailed and said boring in the comments. <laughs> uh, but 
Uh, no, just learn everything you can and find a person who's like-minded and will take the time to talk to you. I think it's very important to give back. Um, if you've gotten to a higher level in some kind of livestock management, and that's what honeybees are, uh, you owe it to those who are just starting out to spend time with them and help them get started right. That's yeah, pretty much it. Great. And I want to thank you for having me on too. I was very, very happy to be here. Oh yeah, it's a pleasure so, and uh, yeah. nice to talk to an expert and hopefully we'll do it again soon. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks.